Thank you all for coming out this evening. My name is Jared Ortiz. I teach Catholic theology in the religion department and I'm the director of the St. Benedict Forum. The St. Benedict Forum, for those of you who don't know, is the Catholic intellectual and spiritual institute that serves Hope College. We are a ministry of the local Catholic Church, St. Francis de Sales, and our mission is to bring a distinctively Catholic voice to the Hope College conversation. We are very pleased to be hosting this event for the release of Jack Mulder's new book, What Does It Mean to Be Catholic, which is on sale in the back. And we're very grateful to Han Luen, Concert Comline, and Lynn Jaffinga for their participation in tonight's event. The St. Benedict Forum has a threefold mission, which is intellectual, spiritual, and ecumenical. Ecumenism is one of those words that we sometimes hear and are not always sure what it means. Hope College, for example, describes itself as ecumenical in character and rooted in the Reformed tradition. What, though, does ecumenism mean? Simply understood, we can define ecumenism as the movement toward Christian unity. The body of Christ is sadly divided. We live our collective Christian life in disunion. Ecumenism is the spirit-led effort to bring about reunion. We understand that ecumenism works on a number of levels. First, there is simply the level of ecumenical friendship, and we're very good at that here at Hope. We get along. I see many of my Protestant colleagues here. We Catholics invite our non-Catholic friends to respond to a Catholic book, and they eagerly agree. Next, there is the level of formal dialogue. We discuss our similarities. We discuss our differences. We look for deeper agreement and acknowledge where no agreement can seemingly be had. Finally, there's the level which John Paul II called the exchange of gifts. On this level, the different Christian groups witness to one another from the integrity of their own tradition. They bring forth the distinctive fruits of their particular Christian expression, and others receive this as a gift. I hope that tonight will be an occasion for all three levels. Tonight's event has been organized as a formal dialogue. Dr. Mulder will start us off by telling us a little bit about his book and what it means to be Catholic. Dr. Concer Comline and Dr. Jappinga were both asked to respond to some part of Dr. Mulder's book. They read his work carefully. They chose the topic of engagement, and they prepared their thoughts, agreements, disagreements, and questions from the perspective of their own Reformed tradition. Dr. Mulder will respond to each of their presentations. At the end, there will be time for questions from the audience. I'll introduce each speaker as he or she comes to the podium. First up is Dr. Jack Mulder. Professor Mulder is Associate Professor of Philosophy here at Hope College and is Chair of the Philosophy Department. He is also Co-Founder and Assistant Director of the St. Benedict Forum. Dr. Mulder has been at Hope College for a long time. <laughs> he was a student here in the late 90s and has taught here for over 10 years. 
He has been a leader in ecumenical dialogue. And events like this would not have been possible without the groundwork he has helped to lay. On a personal note, I have to say that the St. Benedict Forum would also not have been possible, likely would not even exist, without his constant friendship, wisdom, and patience, which has allowed us to flourish in our short time here. Please help me welcome Dr. Jack Mulder. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. I appreciate it. So I'd like to thank uh, Jared for his introduction, his friendship, and the work he puts in uh, here for the St. Benedict Forum. I'd also like to thank Brian Piku. Where'd he go? Uh, there he is. Uh, for his work uh, with organizing this and many other events for us. And Lynn and Han Lin uh, for agreeing to take time out of their busy schedules, not just to offer their remarks here tonight, but to read the book, right, uh, we're discussing. Um, the book I wrote is not a conversion narrative, but it does sprinkle in lots of stories from my life about how I think about Catholic truths. So it's interesting for me to be taking part in this event tonight, which we're billing as this year's Catholic Reform Dialogue event. I began my time at Hope College as a Reformed student and returned to it after graduate school as a newly minted Catholic. I was raised in the Reformed tradition and still respect it a great deal. It served me very well growing up, and to, it, to me its place in God's plan for my life is indispensable and unmistakable. When my wife Melissa and I were initially married, we moved to Purdue University in north-central Indiana, which I think we both regard as something of a purgatory, uh, <laughs> though my doctrine of purgatory may be a bit more positive than hers. Um, we spent a year or two looking for a church home outside the Catholic Church without a lot of success. Melissa was yearning for the Eucharist, and we decided to give Mass a try. So God began working on me through what I saw in the liturgy in powerful ways. It took me a while to learn the language of Catholic ease, uh, where process, process uh, is an important verb, and religious is often a plural noun. Uh, but over time, I've found a spiritual home in the Catholic Church. Something else was happening to me as well. I was studying philosophical theology in graduate school and was also teaching courses in religious studies. At Purdue, they needed people to do this, and I was happy to oblige. At that time, I was particularly concerned about interfaith dialogue and found St. John Paul II's thoughts on these matters very helpful. I was also struggling with philosophical philosophical challenges from atheists, and at length found the help I was seeking in some of the medievals, like St. Thomas Aquinas, his feast days today, by the way, if you don't know that. Um, but finally, as a teacher, I would sometimes struggle with how to present a doctrine like the Trinity to my Muslim students who had as little patience as I did for idiosyncratic theologians who appeared not to mind flirting with polytheism in their rethinking of the Trinity, the paramount mystery of the, of the Christian faith. I felt I needed a source I could at least trust to be heeding the church's historic decisions on such an important matter. So I grabbed the $8 copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church I picked up a few years before. For some reason, I thought that whatever my misgivings about those crazy Catholics, they were at least going to be doing okay on things like Christology and the Trinity. 
All of these things were happening to some extent around the same time for me, and as I began to consult the Catholic tradition more and more, the more I felt welcomed into something for which I had been longing. I suppose a skeptic could say <clears throat> I was merely adopting my wife's tradition, but I have two things to say about that. First, I think we dismiss that too early. The Holy Spirit works through people in all sorts of ways. After all, I also think my upbringing in the Reformed tradition was a place where I could sense the work of the Holy Spirit and still do. Second, my experience was that of a real change of mind and heart. My faith grew deeply through the mystical tradition and Catholicism and the devotional writings of St. Francis de Sales. It did not, not through a narrowing, but through a, and after a broadening of my religious awareness, as I grew to love the Buddhist and Muslim traditions as well. I appreciated the liturgy, too, because I, too, yearned for a structure to my worship that I did not invent. I also knew that this faith into which I was to be welcomed could not be merely intellectual. Instead of going to the campus parish with its academics, Melissa and I deliberately went to the cathedral where the Catholic faith was the inheritance not of intellectual elites, but of the rank-and-file Catholics who knew they needed God and loved the faith of their heritage. There were also parts of this story that were and are painful for me. I was re rethinking my faith in profound and jarring ways. There were real changes and struggles in life that this occasioned. I mean, here's just a minor example. Uh, but, you know, as, as a, someone at Hope, I insist on going to the opening communion service at Hope every year. Uh, but it still continues to be a painful experience for me, even as I agree with my church that I shouldn't receive communion there. So I'm still learning about the Catholic faith, but on an ecumenical campus, I sometimes need to speak up about it so that our conversation can be enriched. I began writing a book about how I explored and grew to love the Catholic faith, and we're here to talk a little bit about it. The title is one that I've heard some responses about from a few quarters. Our dear departed colleague of happy memory, John Shaughnessy, did me the great honor of reading the book and offered some helpful and moving comments on it. I'll draw on them a bit here as I say a few, few words about the book. Excuse me. John rightly was concerned that the book was less about what it means to be Catholic and more about what the teachings of the Catholic Church mean. The short answer to this telling criticism is sure to disappoint. It's the title the publisher wanted. <laughs> the longer answer is a bit more interesting. As the often misunderstood Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has said in the introduction to his encyclical Deus Caritas Est, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. John Shaughnessy rightly echoed Pope Benedict in noting that the core of our faith is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So all I want to point out about the title, and now this goes beyond John's helpful point about it, which is dead right, is that first, the book is my own exploration of what it means to be Catholic. And to provide that, it explores a wide range of Catholic teachings. But second, the title, What Does It Mean to Be Catholic?, is a question I asked. And when one enters the faith from the outside, one needs to know what is distinctive about it. One can't really answer the question, what does it mean to be Catholic, without consulting the teachings of the Catholic Church itself. Now, John's treasured reflections also prompted me to consider the authority of the Church, even in relation to teachings of the faith that are considered infallible, we often need to consider afresh how to interpret those teachings. One of my favorite examples is the dictum, outside the church there is no salvation. This springs from St. Cyprian of Carthage, 
And it made some real sense in the third century. Because Christians were being persecuted for refusing to worship the Roman gods. Keep in mind that the Romans didn't particularly care that the Christians also worshipped right, uh, the Christian god. They just wanted everyone to pay tribute to the Roman gods. But Christians knew they couldn't do that, and they suffered because of it. If the confessors and martyrs weren't suffering and dying for nothing, then it had better be the case that what they were getting in the all-absorbing faith of the church couldn't be gotten anywhere else. Right? In our time and in our little corner of the world, persecution of Christians is not really the name of the game, and we bump up against well-meaning, thoughtful people of other faiths and of no faith all the time. Right? So Catholics now, you know, kind of reapproach that uh, dictum and say, look, we still insist that salvation is in Christ and that ultimately it's the body of Christ, the church, in that, in that body that we're saved, but that God's grace in Christ can reach to those who follow their conscience even without an explicitly Catholic faith. John Paul II talks about implicit faith, for instance. Well, why then should we even bother about all this Catholic business? Perhaps we should just all be non-denominational about the whole affair. Right? Well, I don't think so. Um, Christians are lovers of Christ, and true lovers want to know whom they love, and they want to, you know, uh, love whom they know. Right? And they want to grow in both of those things, or their love isn't true. Catholics believe that Christ founded a church to teach us, but not just to teach us. The church also imparts the love of God to us through Christ and his sacraments in powerful ways that affirm our whole being. The smells and bells of the Catholic faith, we sometimes use this language, are important because we smell, hear, taste, touch, and see, and we want to see Jesus. That's why I wrote about the seven sacraments in chapter 6. One of the things that, as a Protestant, I needed to learn about the Catholic sacraments is that the objection, but God doesn't need seven sacraments uh, to redeem us, is moot. It's the same objection uh, to say that God did not need to love us as much as he did. Of course that's true. God doesn't need seven sacraments, and there was no internal necessity for God to love us in the gratuitous and unmerited way uh, he did and does. But God does love us far beyond what we could ever think to ask or even imagine, and that's why he chooses to share his very life with us by grafting us onto Christ through the sacraments. That's also why I wrote chapter 8 on the human person, chock full of thorny social and moral questions, abortion, euthanasia, contraception, sexuality, same-sex marriage, and so on. Since, as Pope Francis has pointed out, God and Christ redeems not just individual people, but the social relationships between them. The principle, this principle is at the heart of everything Catholic. We cherish scripture and tradition. Freedom and providence, a human and divine Lord who worked through saints and sinners, redeems the whole person, body, soul, spirit, and society by grace through faith shown in works. Okay? So what does it mean to be Catholic? I guess I, I think it means to belong to a Lord that knows you better than you know yourself, to belong to a church that's meant to redeem you more fully than you could have guessed. And so I think the teachings of the church are there to guide us further up and further in to the wedding feast of the Lamb, since in the end, that's all there will be. So that's it for now. Thank you, Jack. Those thoughtful comments, a tough act to follow, but happily... 
Dr. Han Luen, Concert Comline, is up to the task. Dr. Concert Comline is Assistant Professor of Church History and Theology at Western Theological Seminary, our friends across the lawn. I met Han Luen when we were both lowly graduate students, both of us writing on Augustine and hoping to land happy employment somewhere. Little did we know we would end up as neighbors. Han Luen impressed me from the first time I saw her give a paper. It was evident that she was a careful reader, an excellent writer, and had an impressive theological mind. We are very blessed to have her in our midst. Please help me welcome Dr. Han Luen, Kanzer Kamlein. Let me begin by expressing my gratitude for the opportunity to respond to Jack Mulder's book, What It Means to Be Catholic. As a professor at Western Theological Seminary, I am part of a Christian community that strives to be evangelical, ecumenical, and reformed. Most often, we live out this identity in the daily privilege of educating students from a variety of Protestant denominations. But today represents an opportunity for me to exercise this commitment to ecumenism in the important work of engagement with fellow Christians who are Roman Catholic. That's a first reason I'm grateful. But the most important reason I am grateful for the invitation to participate in this event is my desire to live out what Jesus wanted for his followers. On the eve of his betrayal and arrest, he prayed that those believing in him would all be one so that the world would trust in him. It is in the spirit of that prayer that I hope to offer these comments. There is so much to admire, and especially if you're someone like me who is not Roman Catholic, but wants to know more about Catholicism, so much to learn from Jack Mulder's book, What It Means to Be Catholic. In just the first four chapters of this book, you'll find accessible definitions of Catholic concepts with which you may have been vaguely familiar before, but never heard actually defined, like encyclicals, the deposit of faith, the ordinary and extraordinary magisterium, honest and helpful thoughts on tough questions that all Christians face, such as the existence of God and the problem of evil, and statements of extraordinary beauty God in Christ is our heaven. That's lofty truth in down-to-earth words. To that, I can only say amen and amen. Indeed, amen is something I found myself saying repeatedly when reading this book. But to recount all the occasions on which that was the case would be both less interesting and less manageable then focusing in the rest of this response on some parts of it that puzzled me. More specifically, I'd like to focus on the foundational issue 
of the relationship between scripture and tradition. How are we to conceive of this relationship? Jack describes it in several ways. Sometimes he calls attention to how this relationship is asymmetrical. In other cases, he points out how this relationship can be symmetrical. In the time that remains to me, I'd like to pose some questions about these descriptions and to ask some overarching questions about how these descriptions relate to one another. I was reassured to read the opening paragraph of Jack's discussion of the relationship between tradition and scripture. Here he makes clear that's, that there is a difference between how we initially discover the authority of scripture and why it enjoys the authority that it does. Even if we first learn what scripture is from the believing church and her tradition, the Bible does not derive its authority from the church or tradition. Rather, the Bible has authority because it is the unrepeatable testimony of the heritage, person, and apostolic community of Jesus Christ, who is God's supreme revelation. That's a quote from Jack's book. Tradition, meanwhile, is authoritative because it helps us to interpret the Bible. This way of talking about the foundations of the authority of scripture and tradition suggests an asymmetry. The authority of scripture is inherent. The Bible is authoritative because of what it is, an unrepeatable testimony to God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The authority of tradition, on the other hand, is derivative. Tradition is authoritative because of how it relates to scripture, because it serves as a resource, to use Jack's words, for biblical interpretation. Tradition relies on scripture to make it authoritative, but scripture does not derive its authority from tradition in a reciprocal manner. This is where my first question arises. I am all for affirming the asymmetry between scripture and tradition, but would appreciate more clarification on how exactly the authority of tradition is being grounded. What does it mean in this context to serve as a resource for interpreting scripture, and why should that confer authority? It seems that plenty of things serve as resources for interpreting scripture. Reason, eyeglasses, Bible dictionaries, lexica, the list goes on. But that function in itself does not automatically entail authority. I don't necessarily dispute the idea that tradition should enjoy some level of authority, but would like to know more about what Jack is saying here about why it's authoritative. Jack also makes other statements indicating an asymmetrical relationship between scripture and tradition that seem to accord a kind of primacy to scripture. For example, he states that, quote, we latecomers only know Christ as communicated to us in and by the scriptures, and that therefore tradition, quote, needs scripture to keep it housed within the meaning of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the fullness of all revelation, end quote. Rather than then making the point that scripture is equally in need of tradition, 
Jack then goes on to observe that the Bible itself affirms the importance of tradition. Tradition depends on scripture for its authority, and scripture confers authority upon tradition. This does not seem to be a tit-for-tat kind of relationship. Authority seems to be flowing from Jesus Christ through scripture to tradition and not in the other direction. Even while characterizing scripture and tradition as mutually enforcing then, Mulder characterizes scripture and tradition as relating asymmetrically with regard to the source of their authority. In one case, I was very surprised to see asymmetry of the opposite kind of what I would have expected. In this case, I should note that the comparison that I'm making is synthetic. Jack doesn't juxtapose things in quite the way that I'm going to do. Whereas Jack makes the observation that, quote, the scriptures are verbally inspired, but in the limited sense of the historical knowledge and cultural context of the biblical authors, end quote. When it comes to the magisterium, the teaching tradition of the church, I found no such qualifiers with respect to infallibility. And I will be most happy to be corrected on this point. (laughs) For me, this raises two lines of questions. First, in those cases where the church is held to speak infallibly, are its pronouncements, like the inspiration of the scriptures on Jack's view, limited by the historical knowledge and cultural context of its human authors? If so, how is that the case? If not, the bar for infallibility would seem to be even higher than the bar for inspiration. Can we therefore say that the infallible teaching of the Catholic Church is inspired in the same way, or perhaps even more powerfully, than the way in which scripture is inspired? Second, The statement that, quote, the scriptures are verbally inspired, but in the limited sense of the historical knowledge and cultural context of the biblical authors, end quote, flummoxes me precisely because of how so many highly respected figures in the Catholic tradition have interpreted the Bible. While this statement seems to correspond well to the interpretive strategies often applied by modern biblical interpreters, stereotypical practitioners of the historical critical method, for example, it seems to fly in the face of the best of Christian biblical interpretation in all times and places, and to be particularly inimical to many early and medieval practices of biblical interpretation. If the scriptures are only God-breathed, inspired, God's word, in, quote, the limited sense of the historical knowledge and cultural context of the biblical authors, end quote, then all of Augustine's interpretations of the Psalms, some of his most copied works in the medieval period, were fundamentally misguided, as was the entirety of the Alexandrian um, exegetical tradition, Origen, Clement, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria, books like that. Because... The relevance of these endeavors is built on the assumption that God speaks to us in Scripture in ways that dramatically outstrip what its human authors could have asked or imagined. Furthermore, within Scripture itself, 
we can find precedents for interpreting the Old Testament as speaking to us in an inspired way that transcends the historical knowledge and cultural context of the biblical authors. I must be missing something here because the Catholic Catechism quotes Hugh of St. Victor's statement that all divine scripture speaks of Christ. Is scripture not verbally inspired when it does this? Why would we want to limit biblical inspiration to the confines of conscious human intention? Is the assumption behind this view that all biblical authors knew in some sense that they were prophesying about Christ? I will stop here as far as questions regarding various ways in which Jack characterizes the relationship between scripture and tradition is asymmetrical. But of course, this is not the end of the story. Jack also points out a number of ways in which the relationship between scripture and tradition is symmetrical. Here I'll focus on two. Jack notes Trent's teaching that, quote, both scripture and tradition were to be given the same sense of loyalty and reverence, end quote. I appreciate the clarification he then provides by explaining that scripture and tradition are not in fact two separate sources, but rather that there is, quote, just one deeper source of revelation, namely God's communication of his saving love that gives rise to both scripture and tradition. But I wonder, is this deeper source of revelation accessible to us in an unmediated way? If not, it would seem that in terms of how we actually access Revelation, there are still two sources when it comes down to it. And certainly, even if Scripture and Revelation cannot be kept entirely separate from one another, they can be distinguished as they are in Trent. And if Scripture and tradition can be distinguished, judgments can be made, again, as in Trent, about what our attitude should be toward each of them. How, then, does this statement from Trent, which seems to place tradition on a par with Scripture in unmistakable terms, respect the asymmetry between Scripture and tradition that Jack affirms in according Scripture an intrinsic authority and tradition a derivative authority? Is affirming an asymmetry with respect to authority really compatible with affirming a rigorous symmetry with respect to the loyalty and reverence due to scripture and tradition? And if so, how is that the case? Finally, the idea that scripture and tradition together make up one sacred deposit, that's a quote, and quote, the foundational revelation of Jesus Christ, end quote, constituting two forms, though not two separate sources of revelation, is another way that scripture and tradition are related symmetrically, according to Jack. I wonder, does this mean that we can call both scripture and tradition the word of God, using the term univocally? These last examples of the senses in which Jack characterizes the relationship between scripture and tradition as more symmetrical are places where I could not say amen. It is my hope that for the majority of both Catholics and Reformed believers, both scripture and tradition are crucially important authorities. But with thinkers from the tradi traditions, such as Augustine, 
and Thomas, I find it appropriate to distinguish between the two and to accord scripture a, quote, sacredness peculiar to itself. That's a quote from Augustine. I am eager to learn more about how Catholics understand the relationship between scripture and tradition, and am willing, for the purposes of this dialogue, to concede at least one point initially. I hope the Lord will hasten the day when our churches will demonstrate a unity analogous to that of the Catholic understanding of the relationship between scripture and tradition, a unity of greater parity and intimacy rather than the Protestant one. As I was pondering where to dive into Jack's book for the purposes of this response, because so many things in the book interested me, I came across the following verse from 1 Corinthians. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. How often, down through the centuries, Christians have pounded their chests before each other in just this way. I am a Lutheran. I am a Calvinist. I am a Dominican. I am a Franciscan. I belong to Paul. I'm a Protestant. I belong to Cephas or Peter. I am a Roman Catholic. Paul shows just how ludicrous this posturing is. Was Paul crucified for you? He asks. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? As he later points out, his efforts aren't worth anything in comparison with the greatness of what Christ has done. Christ, he later explains, is the one foundation of the church. This is a point that Jack emphasizes repeatedly in his book. This book's refrain is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus gets to the root of the faith that goes deeper than either scripture or tradition and all the questions I have raised about how they relate. As I've already observed, there are so many strengths of this book, but its insistence on the centrality of Christ is the most important one in terms of its potential to connect with Reformed Protestants at the core of their faith. We are in agreement on this central issue. Thus, I believe that we are fundamentally in agreement in affirming the point that Paul is so concerned to get across to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.11. No one can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid, Jesus Christ. So I have the privilege now to uh, respond uh, to uh, those thoughts from Hanluin, um, and, uh, and you should go ahead and give me grief later on in, in the question and answer if, 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 if I do a bad job of that. But anyway, um, 
So first, I'd like to thank Han Luen for a thoughtful response and agreeing to join us in this dialogue tonight. Um, I wrote this book over the course of probably seven or eight years, sometimes forgetting about it, sometimes returning to it, almost never really sure what would become of it. The first thing I began writing was the chapter on scripture and tradition, and it was one of the last I felt I really finished, though I don't really feel like anything I ever write really feels finished. So it doesn't surprise me that Han Luen rather handed me my hat on scripture and tradition. Um, since it's a surprisingly complex issue that I'm constantly working out for myself. Nevertheless, without insisting that every word in my book is the best way to express my view, let me try to explain my views about scripture and tradition. <coughs> Excuse me. Consider the wife of Pilate, uh, whom some of the Eastern churches venerate as a saint, <clears throat> Claudia Procula, or Procula for short. Since the story developed that she became a Christian sometime after the crucifixion, for a wonderful, uh, vivid uh, portrayal of her, read Gertrude von Lefort's novella, uh, The Wife of Pilate. It's a good story. Now, Procula probably would have entered the Christian community, supposing she did, we don't really know for sure, but uh, supposing she did, at a time when the Bible could not yet be held in one's hands. Okay. Still, the apostolic preaching, that term, the apostolic preaching, which the Catechism of the Catholic Church writes, is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, could be keenly remembered. Because you might have bumped into an apostle like yesterday, right? So Procula could still heed St. Paul's advice to stand firm. This is Paul. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Now, I think it's important to notice something that Paul is doing here. Christians like Procula could have received these traditions, this apostolic preaching, through either an oral statement or a letter. Clearly, this or a letter could include the letters of Paul himself that we now reckon as part of the canon of Scripture. Indeed, 2 Peter 3.16 already seems willing to fold Paul's letters in with the rest of the scriptures. So what does this mean? For Procula, I think what it means is that there would be very little need for her to distinguish between scripture and tradition at her early stage. What's she going to make of the distinction between scripture and tradition when she's never actually seen scripture? Okay. In fact, if she ever thought about that distinction at all, she would presumably reckon Paul's laters, later to be included in the canon, as simply the apostolic preaching itself. Maybe she even heard somebody recite the letter to the Second Thessalonians or something. Okay? In this qualified sense, I, can, I think it can be said that for Procula, the wife of Pilate, the New Testament scriptures are basically indistinguishable from the voice of tradition at that early stage. Thus, to respond to Han Luen here, in this historical moment, in that one for Procula, I think Procula would find it confusing to say that tradition is derivative upon Scripture. Right? 
Because she hasn't seen scripture yet. She hasn't seen the New Testament scriptures yet. But let's change the time frame a little bit. Okay? Instead of Procula, let's think of St. Francis de Sales, who died in 1622, and who was pleased as punch to have the guidance of the Council of Trent, which ended in 1563. Now, by that time, everyone in the Catholic world had been operating with the same canonical list for some time. They knew what scripture was. The church had told them, right? But if you read Trent, you can find a nice clear list of canonical books for Old Testament and New. Now, the writings of saints and bishops, Francis was both saint and a bishop, are judged against the past tradition for any error, but also factored into subsequent tradition as sources for it. You pick up the Catechism of the Catholic Church and St. Francis de Sales is quoted in it. Francis, of course, never met an apostle and died well after the close of the apostolic age. I mean, St. John wasn't running around anymore. But for him, sacred tradition was both norming and normed. It was normed by past tradition. The new tradition is normed by past tradition. But it was also normed by sacred scripture whose canon by this time had been definitively established. Once the scriptures take their place in the life of the church, further developments in the tradition are now responsible to scripture. Okay? Which eventually we can point to and read. Procula is not in much of a good position to do that. St. Francis de Sales is. Okay? Scripture is now a written rule of faith. Okay. So the situation's a little different. It's through tradition that we learn the canon of Scripture. Han Luen made that point too. But it's through, tradi- it's through Scripture and past tradition that we hold new tradition, future tradition, succeeding tradition accountable. Okay. For latecomers, like St. Francis de Sales and you and me, It looks much more like tradition is derivative upon scripture. It looks like scripture is the primary thing and and tradition is derivative upon it. It looks that way because that's the way we experience it. Okay, to speak to Han Luen's point about what depends upon what here, I don't think tradition is intrinsically derivative upon scripture. It's better to say that future tradition is derivative upon scripture for us latecomers. Because we're now in this situation where we can point to Scripture, whereas Procula is going to find that distinction confusing. He's going to be like, what are you talking about? Scripture and tradition. You know, apostolic preaching. It's all one. (laughs) Scripture is a special source of the apostolic preaching, but we shouldn't forget that Vatican II is very clear that it's tradition. And this this is a passage from Vatican II. Tradition transmits the word of God in its entirety. Tradition does that. Vatican II actually didn't settle for Catholics whether scriptures transmit the word of God in its entirety. That's not settled by Vatican II for Catholics. Tradition does that. That we can say. I'll note one final thing briefly. The catechism distinguishes five senses of scripture, and the first is the literal sense. It's true that the literal sense is the one on which the others rest, 
because you can't get any other sense if you don't actually have words, right? Um, but it's also true that we should be careful with how we use the term literal. Thus, Vatican II points out that the human authors of Scripture are real authors. They could have used and did use a variety of literary techniques to communicate God's revelation. And we need to be attentive to this. Jonah, if you read it in Hebrew, reads like a children's story. Right? It does. Um, they could have used and did use a variety of literary techniques, and we need to be attentive to this. When I say that the human authors and their intentions place some limits on what we can ask for from the literal or verbal sense, I don't mean to restrict the work of the Spirit in the church's reading of the Scriptures, especially as it pertains to those other senses, those allegories and, and you know that kind of stuff. Right? St. Augustine employs a lot of allegory. So does St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. John of the Cross, and they're awesome. I love them. Right? I merely want to remind the reader of Scripture when, when I say that, that, that so the, you know, the, we do need to think of uh, the writers of Scripture in terms of historical context and in terms of their circumstances. And when I do that, I, I just want to remind the reader of Scripture that she should not read every word there in the same slavishly literal sense in which she reads a newspaper, a bare reporting of facts. Right? If she does, she will have no patience for literary genres right? and will have the fragile faith of the seed sown on the path when it comes time to realize that the Bible isn't a science book or a history book in the sort of customary sense. So that's what I got for right now. Thank you, Han Lewin and Jack. And again, please save your questions uh, for the Q&A session. I know I have several. Uh, but <clears throat> now to the more Rudy 2D part. Dr. Jappinga uh, is professor of religion here at Hope College and the author of a recent history of the Reformed Church in America called Loyalty and Loss, which is also on sale in the back. Dr. Jappinga's work um, focuses on feminist theology and the history of the church. In America. She also had the distinguished honor of picking me up at the airport when I flew in to interview at Hope College four years ago. Her warm hospitality and sense of humor attracted me even more to the college, and her inside information about the president and the provost proved invaluable <laughs> for the interviews that I had with them later that week. So thank you for helping me get the job, Lynn. But tonight we look forward to Dr. Jappinga's reflections on Jack's book. Please help me welcome Dr. Lynn Jappinga. When I first started teaching at Hope, I had a student who wrote a paper on a philosophical topic, and I realized he was much smarter than I was. <laughs> That student, not surprisingly, was Jack Mulder, and he has indeed turned out to be a very gifted and very smart professor and scholar and colleague. Jack has written an excellent book, and I learned a lot from it. He takes very difficult material and makes it generally understandable, except maybe for transubstantiation, which still doesn't make sense to me. Uh, Jack is respectful of other traditions. He sees value in them. 
He is a committed Catholic, but he recognizes that other Christians are equally committed. He takes the faith seriously, but he does not take himself too seriously. I appreciated his self-deprecating sense of humor, which shows up regularly in the book. I have two brief general comments to begin. First of all, it strikes me that the Catholic and Reformed traditions share the tendency to overthink and overexplain things. So in the Reformed tradition, we get terribly bogged down in the details of election and not just single predestination, but double predestination. We try to explain what is probably best left in the mind of God. Now, personally, I much prefer too much thinking to the dumbing down of the faith, which I see all too often around me. But I do wonder if overanalyzing some of our doctrines leads us down paths that perhaps God did not intend us to go. On the flip side, I think both the Catholic and Reformed traditions share an emphasis on grace. Now, some Protestants have been taught that Catholics teach salvation by works and not by grace, but that is not true. My favorite line in the book is when Jack wrote that our ability to meet God is always outstripped by God's ability to meet us. And then he graciously says, as the Protestant Reformation thinkers remind us. Grace means that God reaches out to draw us into God's self. And that whenever we say yes to God, whether that's in the sacraments or in some kind of conversion experience or confirmation or whatever it is, our yes to God is only a response to God's grace. Now let me make a couple of specific comments on the second half of the book. I was assigned the easy chapters, um, Mary, Purgatory, the Sacraments, Ordination, including women's ordination, Contraception, and Homosexuality. Well, I could talk about these all night, uh, so I'm sure you're already tired, so I'll try to keep it to a minimum. But let me start by talking about Mary. Protestants have not traditionally paid much attention to Mary, which is unfortunate because she is a really interesting role model and a person who represents faith. But one of the reasons, I think, is that Mary is such a tough act to follow. Uh, women today simply cannot be both virgins and mothers, so that's kind of a problem. Um, Mary is often presented as so saintly, so pure, so different from us, there's no way we can measure up to her purity and her virtue. I was particularly interested in the doctrine, then, of the Immaculate Conception. A lot of my students think that this, is what, this means that Jesus was born sinless. And I try to say, no, it means that Mary was born sinless, that God removed the stain of original sin from Mary before she was born. So unlike the rest of humanity, unlike the rest of us, Mary was sinless. She had to be sinless so that she could fully say yes to becoming pregnant and giving birth to Jesus. She had to be sinless so as not to pass along human sin to Jesus. But that seems a little inconsistent to me. Because the mystery of the incarnation, the scandal, as it were, is that God somehow takes on human flesh God is born of a woman, a human woman, 
a flawed, even sinful woman. If Mary is sinless, then why is it so hard for her to say yes to God? But it was hard. Mary was a young woman, perhaps only 14 or even 12. She was asked to consent to what would have been a scandal in her day of being pregnant before she was married. In Matthew, Joseph makes the generous offer when he says he would put her away quietly rather than humiliate her publicly. This was a big deal that she was embarking on. She must have been anxious and afraid. But I don't think that she needs to be freed from anxiety and fear by making her sinless. Because it's God's grace, not Mary's sinlessness, that gives Mary the courage to say yes to God. God worked through Mary the same way that God works through all the other flawed, broken, sinful people in the Bible. And believe me, there are many, many, many of them. If Mary was indeed sinless, there's really not that much reason to praise her for saying yes to God. Of course she could do that. But a sinless Mary reminds me, sorry, this is probably a little bit heretical, but a sinless Mary reminds me of a Stepford wife. But she's not that. She's a real person with real fears. She may have wished that God had favored somebody else. She may have had moments of regret when she was nine months pregnant and couldn't see her ankles, even though they were swollen to swipe twice the usual size. It's okay for Mary to have those kinds of regrets. She doesn't need to be freed from them. God chose to dwell in the body of a woman who wasn't famous or powerful or sinless. She had no credentials, and indeed she was shocked when the angel came and called her favored. She wasn't worthy of giving birth to God, but God chose her anyway, just as God has chosen to work through all those crazy characters in the Bible, just as God has chosen to work through an unworthy world and through us. Secondly, I was intrigued by Jack's discussion of the development of doctrine, which is related to what Han Luen is saying about tradition. Jack said at one point that a, quote, little precious morsel of testimony in the scripture is all a doctrine needs, along with a few centuries of theological reflection. And he talks about how that works in a number of issues, like the Immaculate Conception, like the Assumption of Mary, like the Trinity. I'd like to focus on the issue of ordination briefly. I was fascinated by the appeal to the precious morsel of Melchizedek to defend the permanent quality of ordination. Melchizedek is a fairly obscure figure in Genesis 13, I think. He, he only appears briefly in then the Psalms, and I think Hebrews refer to him again. But it seems like there's a lot of attention being paid to one tiny little morsel in the scripture. And that's fine. I understand that. But I wonder why there's so much attention paid to that particular obscure text when the Catholic tradition ignores the advice in 1 Timothy that a bishop should be the husband of one wife. Right? So we have celibacy, not the husband of one wife. So I wonder how you decide which morsels of Scripture ought to be expanded into doctrines. How do you decide which portions of Scripture will shape church policy? I find it particularly interesting that after appealing to Melchizedek, uh, Jack referred to the idea that um, 
or to the place in Romans 16 where Phoebe is referred to as a deacon, a woman deacon, and, um, or even a minister, and Junia is referred to as an apostle, right? So there are two women who are labeled as a deacon and an apostle, but Jack sort of dismissed that evidence because he says it's very difficult to read backward across the centuries and know what the words mean. Well, yeah, it is. But why is it that that morsel of scripture about Junia and Phoebe isn't allowed to, de- to develop in favor of women's ordination? Now, obviously, I'm a little biased because I'm an ordained person myself in the Reformed tradition, so I have some thoughts about this. Um, Jack also noted that Catholics don't ordain women because Jesus did not ordain women as apostles, and that's an argument I've heard in the Protestant tradition, too. But Jesus did not ordain men to be apostles either. He may have given Peter the keys to the kingdom, but that wasn't really ordination as far as I understand. And Mary Magdalene has often been identified in the tradition of the church as the apostle to the apostles since Jesus first appeared to her in the Gospel of John and told her to go tell the others what she had seen, which is what makes an apostle. But again, we don't, the Catholic tradition and the Protestants for a long time has not recognized the role of Mary, of Mary Magdalene. Jesus was a lot more gracious to women than the Catholic Church has been, although I must admit it's taken the Protestants a very long time to follow Jesus on this matter as well. So finally, Jake summarizes this section by saying that the church does not have the authority to ordain women, but that seems a little weak to me. The church decides in many occasions what to do on certain doctrines. And it seems to me that if the Pope decided that women should be ordained, that the church would then have the authority to ordain women. I know it's not that simple. But I wish that the grace of ordination could be extended to women as well. I could speak at some length on the social issues in the last chapter, but let me register one concern on the topic of contraception. I was going to skip this, and then I thought, nah, go for this. Um, Jack says that, that complete oneness in marriage can only occur if there is the possibility of fertility. All right? So every sexual act has to be open to fertility. Again, I realize this is a controversial topic. We're not going to solve this. But this presents a really difficult issue for women, because a woman who opted for all that union without any contraception could easily be pregnant eight to ten or more times in her life. That may have made sense in an agricultural environment where everybody needed large families or where half your babies died before they reached age five, but we're not in that era anymore. We're in an era of overpopulation where it's very expensive to raise children, And so that notion of contraception doesn't seem very practical, and it certainly doesn't seem very fair to women. But I realize I'm a Protestant. And finally, I'd like to reflect on an issue which is very relevant to our life together as Catholic and Reformed Protestants sharing this particular institution. And that is this. Jack referred to this. Who is invited to share in the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table? Jack noted that he did not participate in communion at Hope College, and indeed Catholic students are also encouraged not to participate in Protestant communion. Jack said that this was primarily a matter of apostolic succession, 
because Protestant ministers like me and like the rest of us are not recognized as being in the accepted line of the priesthood so that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is not quite valid as a sacrament. This seems to make the validity of the sacrament, however, dependent on the worthiness, or perhaps more accurately, the spiritual credentials of the minister, instead of depending on the grace of God, who offers the food and the community and the comfort of the Eucharist. And similarly, Protestants are technically not welcome to receive at many Roman Catholic churches. The reason for this seems to be that we do not share the same intellectual understanding of the bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. But this suggests that those who receive the sacrament cannot simply be hungry for God and God's people and open to God's grace, but they first have to demonstrate the correct intellectual grasp of transubstantiation. I wonder if in the end, the Eucharist really ought not to be about our intellect or assent to particular beliefs. It's not really about us. When we come to the table, we say yes to God. We share God's meal. We experience God's love in the presence of God's people. And it seems to me that we all could be open to sharing that with each other. But I know there's a lot of history involved here. This came home to me last month at John Shaughnessy's funeral. A community of grieving people gathered at St. Francis, united by their love of John. The Protestants made up probably more than half of those who were gathered. But the Protestants were explicitly asked in the bulletin not to participate in the Eucharist, but to signify by crossing our arms that we could only receive, should only receive a blessing. And again, I understand. I understand. But wouldn't this have been a time for all of us who loved John and who are loved by God to share together in God's meal? We all needed comfort. We all needed grace. And certainly it's true that we Protestants were not denied God's grace and comfort simply because we could not participate in the church's meal that day. But it would have sent a powerful message that we truly are one faith, one body, with one Lord. Maybe someday, maybe someday we will overcome those divisions and we will be able to say yes to each other and to God. In the meantime, we will continue talking and trying to be gracious to each other. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, so I just want to thank Lynn for taking the time again to read the book and comment on it. Um, it's always a, a surreal experience to be uh, taking part in things with uh, my old professors. So, you know, it's great. Thank you. 
former professor. That's not the way. I'm sorry. Not what I meant. God bless you. All right. Uh, she was asked to comment on the last four chapters, uh, the chapters I consider to be the kind of most divisive of the book. And she had a lot to consider, uh, and I'm grateful for her time and her comments. I'll try to be fairly brief in my responses, uh, and sometimes I'll only be able to give some really basic bearings. Um, we can talk more about these things uh, in Q&A, if you like. I'll also have to move quickly since Lynn covered a lot of ground. At one point in comments uh, she gave me about Mary, Lynn suggests that there's nothing laudable about a sinless Mary saying yes to God. Um, I'm sorry to have to say that I just don't see it that way at all. Uh, it's not the case that if Mary is sinless, then she's not free. Rather, it's because she's sinless that she's more free than you and me. In us sinful individuals, the effects of sin make us disinclined to do God's will, a fact I learned from the Heidelberg Catechism in the Catholic Church. Jesus has only one natural father, God, and only one natural mother, Mary. Mary is mother of God. As a loving spouse, God would only enter into this intimate relationship with Mary if she were truly free. Sin impairs freedom. It does not enhance it. Mary is Eve done right. Like Eve, Mary was brought into the world sinless. Unlike Eve, Mary never fell. That means that at every moment of her life, she didn't take the devil's bait. She became mother for all of those of us who claim new life in her son. She freely chose to be what we would all wish to be if we had enough sense to choose what would lead to our deepest happiness. So I don't find a Mary who's more like me to be admirable, more admirable anyhow. I find a Mary who's not like me to be more admirable. One who entered into unique partnership precisely because she didn't take the devil's bait. Catholics also see Mary as perpetually a virgin in part because of this intimate relationship with God. Virginity in the Catholic Church is not the same as abstinence. That is a desperate failure of our culture's imagination in regard to sex. Virginity is the spiritual marriage to God, and Mary's is even more unique than that of a nun's or a priest's. God is not the love them and leave them type, and neither is Mary. That's why she remained a virgin, because she was dedicated to God. Lynn also gives me some good food for thought on women's ordination to the ministerial priesthood. I mean, this is certainly an issue I struggled with, uh, you know, a lot when I was considering entering the Catholic Church. I mean, why does St. John Paul II say that the church lacks the authority to ordain women? That's what he says. Um, and says that everyone should hold it, and definitively... For one thing, ordination is not about moral fitness, or otherwise Mary, who's higher in dignity and excellence than any mere man, would be a priest. It would take too much time to respond to each of Lynn's points here, um, though we can talk more about it if you want. Though I do want to indicate some perhaps telling differences. For Catholics to say that the priest is an icon of Christ is more than a metaphor. 
We bless, kiss, pray before, and generally venerate icons. Here's one. Right? A proper icon belongs to a tradition of icon writing, a sacred art. If the priest acts in persona Christi in the sacraments, he's not a metaphor for Christ, but he makes Christ present in his sacramental action. The Mass is not just a symbol, but a mystical participation in the wedding feast of Christ and his church. Sex, too, is not an accident. It's not that there is a neuter soul and a sexed body, but there is one person on the altar making present the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Likewise, we read texts in Scripture always through and with and in the tradition. It is, actually, I think, if you read the passage, just read it. I I actually think it's kind of difficult to know just what exactly is meant. Uh, in regard to uh, Junia in the biblical text. But when we have questions as Catholics, we ask the church how she's always read these texts. What her practice has been and why. Scripture's always still a special form of the apostolic preaching, and we depart from that context at our peril. On the matter of contraception, there are some big questions on which we disagree again. And I mean, you know, there are some things that I'd, I'd haggle over in regard to that. But, but let's, let's talk about the bigger issues for just a minute. First, you know, what is sex? It's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Um, for Catholics, it's a, it is bodily unity with whole persons, not just emotional intimacy. It doesn't mean people can't use their intellects and the biological sciences to determine the times when they would be more or less fertile. And when people do their homework on this method, eschewing the popular prejudices against it, it can be pretty effective. It can also teach self-mastery in a way that's important. Lynn herself taught me from Liz Harris's book, Holy Days, in which a Hasidic couple talks about how they relate to one another in beautiful ways, even while due to factors they observe in their Jewish context, they cannot have intercourse during certain periods. Lastly, on the Eucharist, the trouble is that we are divided. And it hurts. Christ's church has been rent by schism, for which both sides have been to blame, but we still long for Christ's prayer for unity to be fulfilled. It's not just an intellectual thing. Luther severed ordination from apostolic succession, a tangible source of unity and of handing on the faith. Most Protestants don't think I should worship Christ in the Eucharist outside of Mass. But if I can't, then will I need to tote along a priest every time I bring communion to my homebound friends at Freedom Village? Many Lutherans insist I would need to do just that. What about the Christians who fell in various waves of persecution and those who publicly do harm to the faith? St. Cyprian had a lot to say about those folks. A long tradition has said that they should do penance. And that makes a lot of sense of Paul's warning to the Corinthians about partaking unworthily. When I receive communion, I'm shown a host and told, and told the body of Christ... My response is prescribed, liturgical, and instantaneous. Amen. (laughs) So those are some thoughts for now.